Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. Thanks for, for giving us a listen. Uh, if you liked last time and if, if you liked today, I'd like to encourage you just to, to follow uh, or like, uh, subscribe, whatever. I don't even know all these terms, man. Um, but also, like, if this is beneficial to you, would you just take a minute and just send it um, to, to somebody who, who needs this message uh, of hope, who needs to um, feel a little bit closer to their Savior. I'm not trying to, to be big time or anything like that. I really mean what I say in the title here. I, I just want to talk to my friends and family about the Savior, Jesus Christ, and, uh, and hopefully that works for you. If not, like, listen to something else. There's like a billion podcasts out there. Um, anyways, today we're going to jump back in um, to, to the Doctrine and Covenants Come Follow Me lessons, and we're going to talk about Joseph Smith history, the first part of Joseph Smith history. As we talk about this, I want you to know something about me. I struggle sometimes with choices. Like the choice between a bacon avocado burger and the truffle mushroom Swiss and the jalapeno Baja burger, it's just absolutely agonizing to me. Back in the day, when I would go to Far Better Ice Cream, the choice was clear. I would get Barbarian Raspberry Ripple. That was a pretty solid choice. Chocolate with big chunks of brownie and a swirl of raspberry jam. It is safe to say that I overindulged more than a little bit in Barbarian Raspberry Ripple. But honestly, it is sometimes really hard. I, I just, I don't know. Don't get me wrong. Um, I, I don't know if, if getting wrong is even the right way to say it. I can't even commit to my lack of commitment here. But what if there were uh, another burger that would just sing to my taste buds better? And this choice I'm making right now is just robbing me of that future choice that would be so much more tasty. Now, this fear I have, I, I feel like it's justified. Like the other day, I went out to eat with my hot wife, and after careful consideration and a bit of agonizing by me, we settled on a wing joint, which shall not be named, but the service took forever. And then when the wings arrived, instead of being crispy, flavorful pops of protein and buffalo burning that I was anticipating, it was instead, I was instead treated with rubbery chunks of semi-flavorful chicken, and I'm still a little bit angry about it. Now, to compound matters, it seems like sometimes, even when I find a flavorful choice, there are some people that make me feel bad about my choice, like blue cheese. I don't know why. But that bitter taste is growing on me. I think it started with my love of the buttery goodness of spiced buffalo wings paired with the bitterness of blue cheese dip. Oh, right now, like it just gets my mouth watering. It's good stuff. But not everybody loves blue cheese. Like they say things like, that's like dirty socks or old musky underwear or something. Just pretend that when I order my blue cheese burger, that some jabroni behind me overhears and says, you seriously just ordered that? Blue cheese? Ew. Man, what the heck is your problem, I want to say? Then he's um, in our imaginary situation and yells at the restaurant, this dude likes feet. I know it's weird, right? He takes sweaty foot fungus filled with white athletic socks and likes to squeeze the sweat right into his mouth. 
And now I get a little lit and his friend records me in a viral video of middle-aged man losing it in a hamburger joint. And well, there's the end of things for me. But uh, like when things like this happen days later, I'm still stewing on the injustice of it all. But I'm also wondering a little bit if I really like blue cheese after all. Maybe I'll just avoid it altogether. Is it the right choice? And that's just hamburgers. I mean, what about stuff that really matters? Like what major to choose, what girl to marry, where to live? And what about the eternities? Like, am I making the right choice when it comes to eternal life? Like the most important things on my purpose of existence? Honestly, my stomach feels kind of acidy and tight just thinking about it. And I guess this thing... I like making the right choice. This isn't necessarily new. Back when Jesus was on the earth, he walks around saying things that are pretty intense. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, he says, For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the well's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. And then he goes on to say, behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Like he's making some pretty bold claims about who he is and who he is greater than. And then in Matthew chapter 12, as he's talking to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without desiring to speak with him. Basically like, Jesus, what are you doing? Then one said unto him, behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without desiring to speak with thee. But behold, he answered and said unto him that told him, who is my mother and who are my brethren? So, Like it doesn't even seem like his own family is excited about some of the intense things he's saying. And then he goes on talking about how his kingdom is going to grow like mustard seeds or yeast. And he talks about weeds and pearls. And the reaction is pretty clear. Matthew 13 verse 55. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is, Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. You see, questioning about whether Jesus is the right choice, about whether He is the right choice is not new. Even after he resurrects and there is clear evidence that he is alive again. Matthew 28 verse 9, Jesus met them saying, all hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Then said Jesus unto them, be not afraid, go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee and there they shall see me. They, they see him, they, they feel him, they touch him. Even later, he, he eats honeycomb and fish. He's like, no, real, right here, look, it's not falling to the floor or anything. Like this is completely real. But then almost in that same breath, and then 
When they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed the chief priests all the things that were done, the meaning that Jesus is real and he's resurrected. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ear, we will persuade him and secure you. And they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews unto this day. Is it real? Is it real, right? And maybe we ask if it's real, why, why is there so much work to push me away from it? What is the right choice? Certainly, if it is real, it will help you and things will go smoother and they prospered in the land, right? So let's just go with, with back to Jesus, right? You got his younger brother, James, uh, standing outside wanting to talk to him, maybe thinking that his brother is crazy. Well, later he gets a divine manifestation uh, as his resurrected brother appears to him and he believes. Um, 1 Corinthians tells us about this in chapter 15, verse 7. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So James goes all in on this belief in Jesus, that Jesus really is his brother. Imagine how weird that it would be. His brother is the savior of the world. And he leads the church in Jerusalem through upheaval, change, Gentiles, famine, Jewish criticism, and Roman opposition. And then to reward his faithfulness, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees placed James upon the pinnacle of the temple and threw down the just man. And when he doesn't die, they begin to stone him. Did you catch just what happened? What Hegesippus, I can't even say it right, just recorded for us? Like they took James, this faithful follower of Jesus who believed he had made the right choice and his reward for making the right choice was they take him to the top of the temple. They throw him off the temple. When he doesn't die, they stone him. And when it still doesn't work, they take this fuller's club, this heavy implement they use to beat um, linen and they bash his brains out, right? Dang. Is he the right choice? Dude, uh, Stephen, the assistant to the 12, is stoned to death. Uh, James um, of Zebedee, John's brother, an apostle, member of the first presidency, he's beheaded. Philip scourged, imprisoned, and crucified. Mark, tradition holds, is dragged to pieces. Luke is hanged from an olive tree by idolatrous Greek priests. What do you do about this, man? And... and even still with all this persecution, a belief in Jesus still seems to spread. Like the Romans are polytheistic and they're generally glad to welcome you and your God as long as you welcomed all the others. They don't care if you worship the Easter bunny. Like, what's the difference, right? The problem with the Christians is that they wouldn't worship the other gods. They said that their God was the only true God. And in 54 AD, fire destroys most of Rome, 10 of the 14 suburbs. And Nero is looking for someone to blame. And who does he end up on? Well, why not the no good Christians? He tortures and kills them in the most horrific way, planting them on stakes and burning them alive to 
to light up garden festivals. He dresses them in animal skins and releases dogs to attack them. Uh, That's what it seems like the reward of believing in Jesus is. (laughs) A pass. Sounds terrible. And it it doesn't seem to get any better. About a hundred years later, persecution of Christians is still going on. In fact, um, they, they systematically go through and arrest some Christians, and they arrest a man named Polycarp. Uh, he's an old man, and he's a bishop, but he's a Christian man through and through. The cops come to his house to arrest him, and he has them sit down and eat dinner in his house that he serves before going with him. And then he enters into the arena, where um, the proconsul, wanting to avoid a scene, pleads with him to just perform the sacrifice to the emperor and everybody can go home. He says, have respect for your age, old man. Swear by the fortune of Caesar, change your mind, say away with the atheists, meaning the Christians, atheist in that they don't believe in all the other gods. Um, but Polycarp just gazes up at the jeering crowd and gestures to all of them and he says, Away with the atheist. What a salty old man. He says, take the oath and I shall release you. Curse Christ. And this baller, he says, 86 years have I served Christ and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? The proconsul persists and Polycarp starts joking with him. He's like, if you pretend that you do not know who I am, listen plainly. I am a Christian. And if you want to learn the teachings of Christianity, set a day and give me a hearing. And the guy replies, I can throw you to the beast. Call him. I will burn you. Your fires burn for an hour. Goes out. But the fire of the coming judgment is eternal. So Polycarp is burned. Man, is it the right choice? About two decades later, about 177 AD, under the Emperor Marcus Aurelius, Christians are being severely persecuted again. They capture a Christian named Sanctus and they they torture him publicly. Horrifically, like in ways that I'm hesitant to even describe, burning him with hot plates and stretching him until his very figure is like distorted. And kind of one of those classic movie torture scenes, they're just saying to him every time, deny Jesus and you can go free. And, and, and everybody's watching this man. And their point is just to show that if you choose to follow Jesus, you will suffer. And instead of giving up, at every point he screams raggedly, I am a Christian. And as the people watch, instead of having Christianity collapse, something else entirely happens. More and more people join because even though Sanctus dies under horrific ways, they're like, that's what I need in my life. I need the power to deal with hardship and suffering and difficulty. Is it the right choice? A couple hundred years after this, um, their Rome is kind of at a lull and is falling 
There are, um, I don't know, what are characterized at the time as barbarian hordes, Germanic tribes that are coming down to Rome. And they're not valuing the classic libraries, instead using the books to... um, to start fires and other things, and the church is fighting to stay alive. And around the, the same time, in, in 390 AD, there, there's an English boy who is captured by the Irish and is taken away to be a, a slave shepherd. Dude, you don't know how good your life is. When was the last time Payson came up from, I don't know, wherever you're at, attacked you and took you away into slavery? Like, if that is a, that's not even a real <laughs> thing. And, and this was something that, that wasn't even almost remarked upon. It, was, it happened with such frequency. This kid's taken away and he's made a shepherd and, and he just talks about how cold and hungry he was. He prays day after day for God to save him. And it doesn't look like God listens. He's still a slave. He's still suffering. He's still cold. He's still hungry. For six years, nothing seems to change. And one day he hears a voice that says, your hungers are rewarded. You're going home. Look, your ship is ready. The problem is he's like 200 miles away from the coast. And so he just walks away from his slave shepherd job, which is a bad idea, if you can imagine. And, and somehow, miraculously, he makes it to the coast without being stopped or followed. On the coast, he finds a boat, just like promised. The, the boat's taking Irish hounds over to the European continent. So he walks up to the captain and he says, please take me away. And the captain looks at him. He's like, no. And the, this kid is like, oh, man, I just walked all this distance. The boat is here. Everything worked out. And I made it this far for it to not work out. And so he goes into this abandoned house nearby and he just prays that, that, that God will change the captain's heart. And for whatever reason, it works. He walks out and the captain's like, fine. And so they, they take him back and eventually he makes it back to his family. But even though he's home, he doesn't feel home. It feels like he's an outsider. He's far behind in education. While he was off being a slave, everybody else was, I don't know, you know, playing football and going to prom and um, life was good for them. And he just doesn't feel like he fits in. And he starts having these dreams where Irish voices call him back to, to share the gospel of Christ with them. And he can't get it out of his head. So eventually he goes and he gets ordained to be a priest and a bishop and he he starts his mission to Ireland in 432 AD. Now, we don't know quite how he does it, but during his lifetime, he converts the entire island of Ireland to Christianity. It's crazy. That's why we celebrate Patrick to this day, right? And, And this is super important for two reasons. First, well, you got Germanic tribes destroying libraries um, in Rome and making it hard to be a Christian, you get Ireland where they're comp- copying and maintaining scripture and other classics all throughout Ireland. Second, it starts this tradition of bold missionary work, fearless missionaries coming out of England and Ireland. For example, about a hundred years later, there's a guy named Columba. Columba lives in Ireland and I don't know, man, the Irish are not known stereotypically as being 
um, calm, peaceful people. Like the Notre Dame mascot is not the cuddly Irish, it's the fighting Irish. And at least in this instance, Columba lives up to this. He starts a fight that gets 3,000 men killed. Yeah, it's kind of a big deal. And he wants to make penance for it. Now, if you lived in the Middle East, the way you would make penance is you'd go live off by yourself in the desert, and that was basically punishment. It's hard to live in the desert. But Ireland is the Emerald Isle. Things grow there all over the place. It's not much of a punishment to just go eat berries and relax. And so he decides his punishment is that he's going to leave his beloved Ireland and he's not going to come back until he uh, converts as many people as he was, he killed. And this starts this mighty tradition of English and, and Irish missionaries. I guess it doesn't start, it continues this missionary uh, example of, of um, Patrick here. You get guys like Boniface that are just so bold. They'll go into the continent uh, of Europe, seeped in tradition of Norse mythology. One guy goes in there, Boniface walks in, and there's this tree that hung with human sacrifice. And basically he says, my God is better than your God, takes an ax and chops down the tree and is like, what? I told you. And not all of them live, but there's this boldness that happens, right? Now, in time, as you know, this belief in Jesus is corrupted somewhat. Um, by, by the 1500s in Coventry, England, seven people are burned at the stake. There, there's six men and one woman. You know why they're burned at the stake? Their crime was that they taught their children the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments in English. That's messed up. So somehow along the way, it's got to the point that if you read the Bible in your own language, that that is heresy. Uh, That's crazy stuff. And you get this guy named William Tyndale. He's one of these freaky smart kids that, that can read Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. And as he goes to university at Oxford, he falls in love with the, the, the Bible as he can read it in Latin and Hebrew and Greek. And, and he starts to lead these secret Bible study groups. Like he and his friends will sneak out of their apartment and they'll go to this room and he'll like live translate the Bible for them. And people are like, this is awesome. And, and Tinjil just says, hey, the, the nature of God's word is that whosoever reads it, it will begin immediately to make him every day better and better until he grows into the more perfect man. He just loves God's word. And this is um, not something that's a commonly held belief among the leadership of the church at the time. He wants everybody to be able to read the Bible. And when he's disputing one day with the leader of the church, he's like, if God spares my life ere many years, I'll cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scriptures than thou dost, talking to a leader of the church. He's really coming at him. And so he, he starts translating the Bible into English. It's 
awesome. Now, the, since uh, leadership in England is not uh, okay with this, he moves to the continent and he starts smuggling his uh, Bible into England um, like it's drugs or something. They will, they will wrap copies of the Bible in linen, str- smuggle it into the country, and then it's distributed along these merchant networks. When the church finds out about it, they start buying up these um, Bibles so that they can burn it. Well, William Tyndale finds out about it, and he has his friends sell the Bible to um, the church and then uses the money to print and smuggle in more Bibles. It's awesome. Well, they, they send a spy after him. He betrays, finds him, befriends him, betrays him. And then um, William Tyndale is burned alive at the stake. Man, is it the right choice? Now, not too long after this, well, I guess it's a couple hundred years, but we're going over history rather rapidly, so I guess time is relative here. In 1791, in the United States, the Bill of Rights is adopted. Uh, as the first amendment um, of this Bill of Rights, it proclaims freedom of religion, that, that every individual has the right to choose their religious preferences. Interestingly enough, five years after there is somewhere where there's freedom of religion, a man named Joseph Smith, we're going to know him as Joseph Smith Sr., but he's not senior at this moment, meets a young woman named Lucy Mack in Tunbridge, Vermont. He says, what's up? They hit it off and they get married. Five years after there's somewhere where there's freedom of religion, God starts moving forward. He's elegant and powerful. And on December 23rd, 1805, in Sharon, Vermont, Joseph Smith Jr. is born. Now, Joseph Smith Sr.'s family struggles. Um, uh, He he makes an investment in um, wild ginseng. And since he doesn't uh, want to leave his family for a long period of time to go to China and sell it for a huge profit, he partners with a guy named Mr. Stevens, who goes, sells the wild ginseng as, at a huge profit, and then cheats Joseph Smith Sr. out of the money and leaves him with a $1,800 debt, which is a massive debt. Joseph Smith Sr. then has to sell his farm for $800 and Lucy contributes $1,000 that she received for a wedding gift and combined they're able to pay their debts, but they're penniless. Over the next couple of years, they were four more times trying to get their feet under them. And it's rough. But in the, the process of the, these moves, like there are little miracles that happen. When they're living out in West Lebanon, Joseph Smith Jr. contracts typhus fever the infection uh, gets into the, the bone of his lower leg. And the only doctor in the world at the time that can save Joseph's leg from amputation is a guy named Dr. Nathan Smith. Nathan, what a great name. He, he's working at Dartmouth Medical College, which is just four miles from the Joseph Smith farm. A couple years after this, um, the Smith family are renting a farm up in Norwich, Vermont, but their crops fail for two years. 
And on the third year, their, their crops fail again because there's a year without summer. The reason that there's a year without summer is that Mount Tambora in the Dutch East Indies, which is in Indonesia, erupts in April 1815, blowing 25 cubic miles of debris into the atmosphere, which alters uh, global weather patterns. It's the largest uh, eruption in recorded history. It results in cold, uh, colder than normal temperatures throughout New England, and there's four killer frosts between June 6th and August 30th, and it just collapses. Joseph Smith Sr. hears uh, reports that there are more prosperous farms out in western New York, so he takes the 400-mile journey out to an area called Palmyra or Manchester. He, he settles down there and then sends word to Lucy to bring the rest of the family out there. So Lucy and packs up all their stuff, hires a man named Mr. Howard to drive their wagon, and then they start out. But Mr. Howard is a jerk, handles their belongings roughly, gambles away and drank all their money they, point, uh, they pay him. At one point, another family um, <laughs> joins them in traveling, and Mr. Howard kicks Joseph out of the wagon. Joseph, whose uh, leg is still healing and is severely hindered in the way he walks, is limping down the road, but Mr. Howard just wants to sit next to the cute daughters of the other family. When Alvin and Hiram try and stand up to him, they're just little boys boys though basically mr howard knocks them down finally like he he tries to steal their stuff lucy this like five foot firecracker of a woman just stands up to him in the bar and just is like as there is a god in heaven that wagon and those horses and those goods are mine and finally they make their way to palmyra there they 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 begin to mortgage a farm and they start clearing the land if you've been to the East Coast, you know that this is no easy task. The density of trees, the abundance of rocks, this is hard, hard labor. And the family um, just joins together and starts clearing the land. And as life goes on, uh, when Joseph's about 12, he, he feels like there, there is a great religious excitement in his neighborhood. There's a lot of religious debates that sweep through Palmyra. And he doesn't read a lot, but he likes to think deeply and he likes to listen to preachers. And he's really concerned about his immortal soul. But as he listens to more and more sermons, he's often left feeling unsettled. They tell him over and over that he is a sinner in a sinful world, helpless without the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And he believes them. He believes the message and feels bad about his sins, but he's not sure how to find forgiveness. Is this the right choice? He says, I, I wanted to get religion. I wanted to, to feel and shout like the rest, but I could feel nothing. Remember that line from the song? Don't think I fit in at this party. Everyone's got so much to say, right? Like we've been there. Like you don't feel like it's working. You don't feel like it fits. Oliver Cowdery says later that, that Joseph even wonders for a time if there is a supreme being. He, he says, from the age of 12 to 15, I pondered many things in my heart concerning the situation of the world of mankind. The contentions and divisions, the wickedness and abominations and the darkness which pervaded the minds of mankind, my mind became exceedingly distressed. 
I became convicted of my sins. I felt to mourn for my own sins and for the sins of the world. You've been there before, right? You've noticed the darkness of the world and the darkness in you. What is the right choice? One day he's attending a sermon. He hears the minister quote from the first chapter of James in the New Testament. And the, the minister says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not. Joseph went home and re- read that verse. And he says, Never did any passage of scripture come with more power to the heart of man than this did to mine at that time. He said later, it seemed to, to enter with great force into the feelings of my heart. I reflected on it again and again, knowing that if any person needed wisdom from God, I did. What's the right choice? And so one spring morning, dude, spring, oh, spring, 1820, he sets out to the thick woods near his home. He knows a quiet spot in the woods because he had recently been clearing trees for their family farm. He even had left his axe there wedged in a stump to kind of mark this spot that he thought would be perfect to talk to God. He he says he he never like prayed out loud for himself. This is a huge moment for him, this leap of faith. What is the right choice? And so he starts to ask for mercy and forgiveness. He knows he's not perfect and he's feeling this weight of it. And he's also wanting wisdom. How do I give forgiveness? But as he prays, his tongue seems to swell until he can't speak. He says he hears footsteps behind him, but when he jumps up and turns around, he can't see anybody. He tries to pray again, but the footsteps grow louder. It's as if someone was coming for him. He he sprang to his feet, spins all around, but he still sees no one. He says, suddenly an unseen power seized him. And when he tried to speak again, his tongue was bound. Thick darkness closed in around him until he could no longer see the sunlight. Doubts and awful images flashed across his mind, confusing and distracting him. He felt as if some terrible being, real and immensely powerful, wanted to destroy him. And so he digs deep, exerts everything he has for one more chance and calls upon God. His tongue loosens and he pleads for deliverance. But even then he finds himself sinking into despair. And he's ready. He's overwhelmed by unbearable darkness and ready to abandon himself to destruction. Right at that moment, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. It no sooner appeared than I found myself delivered from the enemy, which, was, which held me bound. When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description, standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved son. Hear him. So is it real? Is it the right choice? 
I know some high school students right now that are just getting absolutely roasted. Like it just keeps going and going because they're members of the church and the, the people that surround them just won't let up. The hatred won't let up. Is it worth it? Is it the right choice? How do I not screw up? Is the pressure from others telling me something? What does God really want? Joseph experiences something similar. As he tells people about his story, he finds that instead of them being excited about this message of mercy, there's a great deal of prejudice that happens against him and a great persecution. He says, I was an obscure boy. He's like, I was poor. I was of no consequence. Yet men of high standing wouldn't take notice sufficient to excite the public mind against me and create bitter persecution. He's like, the only thing common among all the sects was that they united against me. He's like, it was so strange. And honestly, he says, it was a cause of great sorrow to myself. However, it was nevertheless a fact. I had seen a vision. And they could persecute me, but it was still real. I had actually seen a light. And in the midst of the light, I saw two personages. And they did, in reality, speak to me. And though I was hated and persecuted for saying that I had seen a vision, yet it was true. Uh, he says, he goes on, he says, while they were reviling me and speaking all manner of evil against me and falsely for saying so, I was led to say in my heart, why persecute you, me for telling the truth? I have actually seen a vision. And who am I that I can withstand God? Or why does the world think to make me deny what I've actually seen? For I had seen a vision. I knew it and I knew that God knew it. And I could not deny it. Neither dared I do it. At least I knew that by doing so, I would offend God and come under a condemnation. I knew basically one thing, he says. I found the testimony of James to be true. That a man who lacked wisdom might ask God and obtain. Now, before you move on and ponder about the right choice, I'd like you to begin to do one more thing. I want you to start reading the scriptures less like they're a rule book where you have to unearth the next concept you need to perform and scratch and claw your way to salvation. Instead, I want you to start to see the scriptures as they really are, as a relentless witness of Jesus Christ. Every page and every story relentlessly testify of him. They show us the nature of God and his power to save, his desire to save and to love and to accept and to build. One way you can do this is to begin to, to see how each of the stories in the scriptures are symbolic of him and his victory of the death we over the death we deserve, over the hell we deserve, over Satan. I, I want you to just look one more time at Joseph's story. And see if he points you towards the saving grace of Jesus. Like, think of it again. See if you see the symbolism here. First, a man walks into a garden. I mean, a grove of trees, right? To pray alone. 
he seeks to commune with the Father. And as he does, he's attacked by the power of darkness to the extent that he is overcome and he finds himself overwhelmed. So he cries out for help and receives heavenly ministration. As a result of these efforts, all the children of God are afforded opportunity to reconnect with their father. You see Jesus in Joseph's story? You see it? You feel it? Faith in Jesus and faith in his kingdom is always going to be a choice. And it's always going to be faith. And he said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on water to go to Jesus. But when Peter saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And he beginning to sink, cried saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.